one buttoned up. I'm very relaxed, as you can tell, but stretching. G'day guys, uh, welcome to this episode of the ISS podcast, proudly supports Swiss 8, the veteran-led mental health charity. Go check out their free holistic app in all app stores now. Guys, uh, this episode of the ISS podcast is uh, it's a good one. We've had uh, Keith on before, Keith Banks. Now, uh, we've got him back on because now he's a second time published author and we, I've grabbed his book. We've, I've given it a bit, bit of a look over, read it read it again and gun to the head is one of the most realistic nitty gritty warts and all accounts of police and, and mental health struggles and resilience and growth that I've read uh, in a long time. Keith, mate, welcome to the show, mate. Uh, so glad to have you back. Thanks, mate. How's the book going? Mate, uh, well, if we didn't have half the fucking bookstores and airports in the country locked down, <laughs> it'd be going pretty well. Um, look, uh, from what I'm told, the publisher's happy with it. You know, it's uh, it sold, I, I think, in the first month, it was 40% more sales than my first one in the same time last year. So that's pretty encouraging. Um, you know, so Booktopia. I think Booktopia is uh, doing well. The Audible's doing really well. Um, I finally knocked Gary Jubilant off uh, the number one slot. (laughs) (laughs) Jubes and I have become really good mates as a result of this whole whole experience, which is one of the unexpected cool things that's happened. Um, Yes, of course, I rang him and told him. (laughs) As you would. (laughs) So does he... um... Sorry, the, the Audible book. Did you narrate it yourself or did you get someone to narrate it? No, mate. No, I've got a guy called Joel Jackson who's an actor. Um, he did the first one as well. Joel's just turned 30, I think. Pretty successful guy um, in the Australian acting field. You know, he's uh, he's portrayed Peter Allen in um, uh, The Boy Next Door. Um, he's uh, He portrayed C.W. Bean in uh, in a TV series of Gallipoli. Um, you know, so, he's, yeah, he's, he's doing okay. And... Uh, He's done a a pretty good job on it. I've actually started listening to it today, literally. So um, yeah, puts yeah, uh, puts life into the characters, which is nice. I just pulled his photo. I've seen him in, in a couple of things. That's yeah. good. That's you good. Can I was... see he's got like his Insta account, Adrian. He's got you know like uh, I don't know twelve thousand followers, and ninety nine point eight percent of them are chicks. Oh, good. <laughs> I'll have to reach out to him. We need a few Instagram specialist to pump up this barbecue campaign yeah just yeah yeah well, straight into a cheap plug mate <laughs> why not mate no he's a good guy he's um he's very on side with veterans so uh, he gets it you know so, yeah yeah after this if you want me to reach out to him for sure yeah absolutely and mate, I'm, I'm stoked to hear it's on audible i know um i don't know how you consume books max but i if i read i, I absorb nothing i have to listen to them on audible so well i'm the opposite i'm absolutely the opposite you can you can put it on audible and i will drive for 12 hours and listen and i get to the other end I have no idea what I just want to do. Unless I read it, it doesn't go into my fucking brain. Oh, isn't nah. that interesting? Yeah. 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 If, I, some, if I read it. Kinesthetic, 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 I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, read wide mix. Nice. Um, <laughs> prick. <laughs> if I'd known the rules, hang on, I'll just have my water. Um, <laughs> no, but that's, that's the thing, mate. Yeah, it's across, it's across uh, e-books and Audible and, um, you know, the usual uh, traditional. No. Just while we're on our drinks, if anyone just just public service announcement, if I make funny faces, this isn't a water bottle filled with vodka. It's coconut water that may or may not be off. So <laughs> every sip, it's a bit, it's a bit iffy. <laughs> so if just you're a free one, we'll understand. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so getting this is the problem that um, we're going to have or I'm going to have. So I, I've got these questions that I want to ask you about. I also don't want to give the ghost up um, yeah. of your yeah. book. But, yeah. but we'll, we'll just um, we'll see how we go and um, see where it takes us. But I guess looking back at it, uh, I want to talk about morality is the big one. I think some of the themes here, because yep. I noticed in your book you spoke about, so there's, I mean, the corruption sat was horrific and it's different corruption to what we think. Like it's not politicians um, yeah. embezzling credit cards for travel fraud. This was, um, for one instance, there was a particular um, prostitute in the Tony Murphy case that um, had an accident in a police safe house. Uh, well, accident, yeah, died of a poison overdose, uh, died of poisoning, but uh, <laughs> I don't think it was too accidental. Uh, right. They were back in the bad old days, mate, before I even joined the job, um, I think that happened, maybe a couple of years before I started that, that whole National Hotel Inquiry and Shirley Briffman thing happened. Um, and Tony Murphy was, was uh, he was fucking scary. He was, um, he was a very senior cop and, and uh, at the risk of cannibalising my sales, um, there's a trilogy written by a guy called Matthew Condon in Queensland, who actually is doing an interview with me uh, on a virtual bloody library thing in a month or so. Um, he's written a trilogy about the corruption in Queensland. And it started in the 50s. His books go through the 50s and 60s. Then I think um, 60s and 70s, then the downfall of Lewis and the, and the corrupt regime after the Australian inquiry. Really interesting reading. Who were but, the cops? Who were the cops after after the war? Was it was it was it these just hardened no bullshit people? Um, was it, mate? I I gotta say, look, uh, Murphy never saw service. Uh, oh, actually, neither did Lewis or Hallahan. Um, but on that subject, just to digress slightly, um, I met some guys who had seen service on the Kokoda track in uh, in Egypt, um, in um, in the the jungles against the Japanese, etc. Who um, who were pretty impressive guys, you know, and straight as a die, just they actually had a moral compass and they understood what it was to to work with your, your mates and do the right thing. I guess that's, you know, um, it's like the cops, not every, sorry, start again. Most cops are, uh, are honest, good people. Yeah, we all joined for the right reason and did the right thing. It's just those, that small percentage of motherfuckers who had an opportunity of influence um, to take money and stand over people and, you know, and, and commit, um, commit murder, um, particularly in New South Wales. So the ADF component, you know, these, these guys were, um, were just impressive blokes, you know, with a chest full of ribbons. And once I started to understand what those medals meant, you know, it impressed the shit out of me. Um, but after, I, I think you'd find like with Hallahan and Murphy, and, uh, and Lewis, and we can talk about Terry Lewis. He's, uh, it's a matter of public record. He went to jail for corruption. Um, and Matt Connor's written about the rat pack that these guys were part of. You know, Murphy definitely was the, the most chilling of the three, I reckon. You know, I only met him a few times. And he, he, he was just one of those guys who looked straight through you, you know. And you, you actually, and because he was so senior um, in rank, he could fuck your life if he, if he took, a, you know, took a mind to it. So you just... <laughs> It's like dealing with a rabid dog or, you know, just avoided eye contact and backed away and, and did your own shit. So a lot so, of these blokes didn't have a – you didn't have a choice. Like some of the extracts from your book, some of these guys, yeah. even if they were straight-up straight, straight up guys, they were, like, they, they were getting pigeonholed into 
sort of doing some things or having to sort of try and get out of otherwise yeah. they're literally their career is fucked yeah that's right and, and the other thing was mate you couldn't report anything so you know it's a hard time to explain in in the paradigm of today's society you know where the cops have got a lot of accountability um and a lot of um expectations and, and and completely different culture in those days we had an internal investigations or internal affairs area but that was staffed by commissioned officers who rotated through it so you didn't know who was working there and and, and what their alliances and allegiances were so you know and and i've written i certainly wrote about it in the first one and i don't know i probably did it again in this one but you know i was told very early in my career because i saw something happening and i, I had this real you know, save the world, um, idealistic youth stuff happening. And and I, I spoke to a sergeant, detective sergeant and said, mate, I know something's going on. I need to do something about it. He said, Banksy, if you do that and you talk to the wrong bloke, uh, you'll come home and there'll be an ounce of heroin in your bedside drawer or your garage will be full of stolen televisions and they'll have a warrant for your arrest. Shut the fuck up and keep your head down. Wow. You know, so... Different, a different world. It's so you, so you learn to do exactly that. Just go right. I'm going to work with some good blokes, some straight blokes who I know aren't going to try and steal money on a raid or, you know, sell heroin back to dealers or, or whatever. Um, and and it's like you know, water finds its own level. So I was lucky enough to be able to identify people like that. Um, and when I got flicked out of the drug squad because I wouldn't go along with something, and uh, and got transferred to a suburban CIB office, which was punishment best thing they could have done for me because I actually found good blokes who genuinely wanted to be coppers and lock up the bad guys and protect people from that you know so it's um and and people have often asked me over the years how I worked in an environment that was that was corrupt and I say again the vast majority of coppers were good people but in that group of good people there were the the ones who weren't you know and I've written about being offered a bribe to to um, screw up an extradition. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've uh, I've written about being asked to sell heroin when I was uh, when I was back in the undercover world. You know, all of that stuff still still horrifies me because I look at that and go, those bastards were allowed to get away with this. Um, because taking that whistleblower step would have been at least a career limiting move, if not. Um, something that you'd end up, you know, pretty severely injured over, because there were coppers who had accidents and, you know, um, were suddenly shanghaied overnight to Camel Wheel outside Mount Isa, you know, because they they said the wrong thing. It was, it was a bizarre environment. So this sense of morality, that that I mean, you could you see it in um, in the defence force. People, we sort of spoke about this. The reason. Because um, I want to sort of tie this in, especially with the Brereton report and, and this morality. Um, you joined for a particular reason, and it was for you an idealistic viewpoint from from a young age. And we were yeah. speaking with some other people, and, and we're talking about people who went to Afghan. Some people went just because they wanted to go and they wanted to run a gun and you know, see what life was like. It was the adventure yeah. of their generation. Sure. Once they got there, they developed their morality and went, oh, these people are actually, you know, these women and children need our help. Like, these people are kind of really shit. Mm. Um, and mm. they developed the reason. But yours was cemented that you went in as a black and white Puritan, I'm here to help. 
Yeah, mate. I I, um, I grew up in a pretty bad childhood um, uh, house, so an abusive stepfather, an alcoholic, a, a wife beater, and kid beater, and um, and I and I I really wanted to do something with my life that would protect people from bullies and predators, and it was either the ADF, you know, I um I was a shoe in for um for Duntroon because my marks were were pretty good, very good actually. And I, I was a cadet under officer in the Army Cadets. I had a Woe 2 that was a Vietnam veteran that was going to be my sponsor. But I literally couldn't stay another 12 months in that household. So I had an opportunity to join the cops. So whether it was cops or ADF, it was going to be something that, that I, I felt was a genuine, almost a noble profession, you know, something to do, something to, to, to give back to society. And, and it was never about the money. Cops weren't paid a hell of a lot in those days, and I'm sure soldiers weren't either. Um, but uh, so it was never about that. It was about something with meaning, yeah? And and whether that was, um, maybe that was just not rebelling, but um, compensating for a, for a challenging childhood and wanting to actually help people. That's probably at the root cause of it. But, you know, even though I grew up in that challenging environment, my mother, God bless her, um, had a real, she was a, um, she grew up in the bush. Yeah. So bush country people are genuinely or generally very, very honest, straight down the line folk. <clears throat> and that was instilled with in, in me from her and from her family, I guess, you know, um, I've, I've uh, spoke, I've, I've sat on the psychiatrist couch long enough and, <laughs> and I'm starting to figure all this shit out at last, you know? Um, but, but I think that's what it was mate. as, as cliched as it sounds. How many, um, how many, how many of the mates in the, in the cops with you came from the same type of background? Um, as I started to open up to blokes, and I keep saying blokes because the amount of women were quite was quite small in those days. Um, as I started opening up, a hell of a lot of us joined mm. because we'd been pushed around as kids, or um, grew up in in bad environments. Yeah. Um, there were a few that had gone to private school and uh, and didn't have that. They they wanted to join for their own reasons. But the more I spoke to blokes, particularly over a few beers, because I, I was always quite guarded about it. I thought I was the only one that that sort of life had ever happened to. And as I got a little older, you know, sort of in my early twenties, um, it became more and more obvious that that was the case in a lot of us. And and even when I talked to Jubes, Jubes joined because he wanted to protect people from bullies. And, you know, when I was in Sydney last year, um, went up there and had beers with, with him and, and the boys, um, we had this conversation. Every single man at the at the table had joined for that reason. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's why I ask. Like, I, we had the same experience just asking, I mean, with our group of mates that we're in the military with, and, and there's outliers in, in every kind of scenario, obviously, but mm. it was high volume. High volume of the boys came from either – um, troubled family, troubled childhood, or there was there was something in their in their upbringing that they were driven to want to eliminate evil and and like you said, protect yeah. people against bullies. And that either came from being bullied yourself, or um, I mean, there's a hundred and one other reasons. But yeah, yeah. The, the majority yeah. of the lads had had issues um, with family and kind of that that what's supposed to be the traditional safety blanket growing up. Yeah. Um, and that's I I think it. it it either makes you or breaks you, and it turns a lot of people to want to be that kind of protector in that protector role, which is good. Yeah, yeah, I think so, mate. And, and you know, and the whole brotherhood, the, the camaraderie of of the ADF and the cops, you will never get anywhere else. But I did see it um, when I worked later in, in in criminal intel, 
I saw it in outlaw motorcycle gangs mm. where, where blokes had come from a particularly bad background or, you know, come out of jail and were looking for that belonging and that sense of tribe. The trouble was OMGs are engaged in, in not all of them. Let's, let's be, you know, we don't want to generalise, of course. The vast bloody majority of them are engaged in criminal activity. So, so the sense of tribe drives them that way, whereas my sense of tribe drove me this way. Mm. Pretty interesting to re- you know, at the age of sixty plus, I, I reflect on that now, and uh, and it's it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, last well, I had a good chat to to, to Jews about this too, about um, men, uh, soldiers, or I mean, defence people, cops, any first responder. Mm. Outlaw motorcycle gangs came up. Um, rugby footy players. Anyone who goes oh, yeah. to join team, join chooses a, a career as being. I want to be part of that. It's it's fundamentally it's the sense of. I mean, I know footy players are a bit different. They might do it for the money and the girls, but yeah. um, fundamentally for males, it's it's that want to have, be part of a tribe and feel protected by it. And you hit seventeen and you make the choice. You go left and you become a cop, or you become a, a soldier, or you go right and you join a bikey gang. Yeah, and you yeah. A few years down the track. Yeah, it's you're in very different places. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's really interesting. The whole the whole sense of belonging, isn't it? You know, and and kids who grow up particularly without a good strong um, male role model need that 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 brotherhood, and they need that uh, that guidance. You know, um, it's it's interesting because it you know when you think you're the only one in the middle of it. You actually question what your um, worth and, and and your um, morals are or your approach, I guess. Once you realise that it's more common than not, it actually gives you a sense of peace to go, okay, right now I understand why I took the path that I did in life. Mm. You know, so it's like, and we'll talk. Sorry, Mick. So I know you've got some questions, but, but I do I do go down these little pathways. No, um, go for it. <laughs> so when when I joined Tactical, um, in you know, once I realised there was a Tactical unit. And I wanted to be there because that's where all the adventure was. Um, that in itself was another level of camaraderie that was even better than being in the, the general cops or being a detective. That was, you know, that was where you're messing around with automatic weapons and learning how to breach strongholds and having all that fun stuff. And, but you, but you, and that's when, as you guys know, um, that's when you trust someone who's actually literally at your back with a loaded weapon who will take out an enemy who's trying to take you out. You know that 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 ramps it right up to another level. Yeah. You know, so yeah. No, absolutely, and I mean that is I, I, again. I'll let you get back on track. Me and you, Keith. I reckon we could go down rabbit hole after rabbit hole, and we'll <laughs> yeah, get we two hours in, and we won't have talked about your book. Um, <laughs> but I mean that that is what what we're finding is is the drama when you leave because that that excitement, your brothers around you, that sense yeah. of safety and security, um, adventure, challenges, all of that goes away, and then. Mm. So the exact that's that same person, the same human standing there going, What am I gonna do now? Yeah. So, yeah. I went through yeah. that when I've left the cops to go into retail of all places. Holy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be but a- anyway, next back to you, brother. <laughs> no, no. Um, because I've just it just it really interests me because instead of getting guests on and going, hey, let's talk about the things that everyone's gonna talk to you about. My interesting thing is, I mean, some of the time I mean, you've been offered some, you could have made a little bit of cash taking some bribes, mate. Oh, you could have changed yeah. your whole life, right? Yeah. So my question is, and, and not to take offense to this, but mm. you you know, your morality was straight down the line for a reason. What, uh, and there is a, there's a fiscal number for the cash you've been offered. 
Mm. If that wasn't the limit, did you have a limit? Would there have been a point where you would have been? Or would Jeez, there that, been that's, a, yeah, would that's it? a hard question, mate. Uh, you know, because I could sit here and go, no, a million dollars wouldn't have been enough. 10 million wouldn't have been enough. I'd be thinking, fuck, you know, 10 million dollars. You could, you could disappear pretty easily in those days. Um, yeah. uh, that's a really good question. That, that's the old ethical dilemma, isn't it? And then I guess the response is, well, what would I have to do for that? You know, um, what what action would I have to take? Or, yeah. yeah, and that and that's how corruption starts. You know, there's a lot of studies. It started with the Nat Commission in, in New York City when Frank Serpico was a whistleblower and got shot in the face for it. And they talked about noble cause corruption. Yeah, noble cause corruption starts with, okay, I'm going to bend the rules today because Adrian's an armed robber. I haven't got enough evidence on him, so I'm going to plant some evidence to make sure he goes away. Noble cause corruption, yeah. I'm going to plant a gun on him. I'm going to load up the evidence. I'm going to fabricate a confession. Yep. Um, so cops go, that's okay. Um, others might be, well, you know, I'm going to take some money from uh, some some brothels because it's a public service anyway. It shouldn't be illegal. You know, they're trying to do the right thing. They've got a, they've got something. So if they slip me a grand a month, what's the harm in that? Yeah. And then you have other cops who go, well. You know, here's, uh, here's Mex, he's selling a shitload of heroin. You know, I'm going to arrest him. Fuck, I found 200 grand in his house. Now, if I don't take that, he's just going to spend it on a defence barrister anyway. So what's the harm? So it's a real slippery slope, you know. And, um, and, and, I, uh, and, and we as cadets, we actually were taught these scenarios in the academy. So, you know, at that tender age of 17 and onwards, when you're really impressionable, I remember sitting in class looking at it going, wow, you know, I would never do that, never. Someone came up to me and said, I don't know, sell me a Glock for, you know, 14 grand. You'd go, piss off, mate. Sell me a Glock for 200. Oh, Jesus. You know, so it really depends on the individual. So notice how I'm cleverly avoiding the answer. Um, yeah, I was about to say, you're very political, <laughs> mate, very political. I may, no. I may have a career I've not even considered. <laughs> But I don't know, mate. It's it's interesting. It would depend, you know, really how much there's involved and what I'd have to do for it. Then I then because I'd have to live with myself after that. Mm. That's the issue, isn't it? You know, and that goes like, into that moral um, injury stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like guys who whack people for money. You know, there's there's um there's certainly some cold hard stone killers in the, in the country. There there have been and there still are right now, and they'll whack you if the price is right. Now that's that's. That's a complete sociopathic or psychopathic personality who has no empathy and no remorse. You know, I've shot people as a cop, but not for money, if that makes sense. And and, and those engagements have been in the, the rules of engagement. So, you know, real and impending fear of life, mine or others. Yep. No issue with that at all. But to actually take money to go and cold-bloodedly put two in someone's head is something I could never count on. So it wouldn't be enough money in the world for me to do that. So at the start, you were saying, I mean, it is a slippery slope, isn't it? So if you, mm. it's, it's, it'll be like anything. As soon as you take one bribe, you you go home, you look in the mirror, you justify to yourself why you did it for the right reasons and blah, blah, yep. blah. Then yep. you take another one, you take another one. And over time, you're like, oh, yeah, I just take bribes all day. I, I, you can only imagine, I mean, I'm sure there is some some legitimate psychopaths and sociopaths out there, but... There's, there's got to be along the, the the same line. You'd think people who get forced to to end someone's life at one stage, if they have to do it again and again and again and again, anything 
can be numbed down over time. And that's, sure. yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think taking bribes, I, if Mex asked me that offline, I mean, the, the dollar figure would probably be pretty low, but <laughs> like, like you said, it depends what for. And and I, in the back yeah. of my mind, whenever I've had to bend or break rules in the past, it's always been that the real moral or ethical piece was if I do this five times this week, is it going to mean that I have find it easy to do it next week? And if the oh, answer yeah. is yes, and you're like, don't take, don't, don't don't take ten grand, even though you know you're going to get away with it. Because yeah. next week you're going to get offered fifty to do stuff that you really don't want to do. Mate, and you probably yeah, say yes. Spot on. And and uh, so the Fitzgerald inquiry in, started in 1987, and it finished two years later. And there were some pretty senior police who were convicted and went to jail, lost their jobs, lost their super, and so on. And 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 I remember looking at them. Um, when they were charged and a few of them thinking, shit, I never would have picked that. Mm. And one of these guys in particular was given cash and he started when he was in the licensing branch. So the vice squad and, and he gave evidence to say, yeah, I took it because I thought I had to, I never spent it. I just took it home. And he had it all stored through his garage in, in brick cavities, all these thousands of dollars that he never spent, you know? Um, and that, that, that's, that probably is an indictment on that culture. It's also an indictment on his lack of um, lack of uh, morality and strength to say, fuck you, I'm not taking it. You do what you want, I'm not taking it. Mm. You know, So that's what Frank Serpico did in, in the NYPD and the Narcotics Bureau back in the day. Um, or sorry, before he went to there, he just said, you, you guys do what you want to do, it's not, it's not me. Um, but a lot of people with um, probably that lack of conviction fell into that trap. And it's like, you know, sexual favours. I, I wrote in my first book when I, when I was a very naive young graduate cadet. I didn't even know what a massage parlour was, but we went to a massage parlour and um, to execute uh, what was called a warrant of commitment. So if you didn't, if you didn't pay a fine, uh, you're issued with a summons. If you didn't attend court, they'd issue a warrant for, you know, 200 bucks that was your fine. If you um, had the warrant of commitment executed on you and didn't have the cash, you went to jail. You know, you might do three days in the bin. So we went to this massage parlour, even though they were illegal, they were condoned because in the whole culture of corruption of the licensing branch, we were just told as uniformed blokes, do what you're told, right? Ask, ask no questions. So I rocked up there with this old, well, old, he was probably late 20s, senior constable and I was, you know, 18 and um, opened the door and this little honey answered the door and I went, shit, okay. And he walked in and he just, he knew them all. He went, yeah, he's got a warrant of commitment for, you know, Sally. And um, and I remember looking looking around. I went, <laughs> that still makes me laugh. I looked around and saw all these beds and said uh, said to him in front of everybody. I said, "Well, this is a massage parlor. Where are the tables and things?" <laughs> he got me outside after they all pissed themselves laughing. <laughs> <laughs> he got me in the car and he said, "Right, mate." He said, "That's that's that's prostitutes." And it all went click because I was from the country. I came straight from the bush, a little town in the bush. And two years in the academy, I had no clue what was going on. And, um, and he said to me, he said, right, during your career, you're going to come across a lot of prostitutes and a lot of them are going to be pretty, right? And uh, you're a young bloke, you'll be offered sex without doubt. He said, but as soon as they wrap their legs around your back, they've got you fucking forever. Do not fucking spit on your badge. And, I, mm -hmm. and that all resonated with me on that, that. And I remember thinking, yep, got it. Because uh, there was a bloke who was a great role model. You know, there was a guy who said, this is what it is. And and as I uh, got a little more service and experience, we used to talk about people like Tony Murphy, but you'd talk about them on night work when no one else was around to listen. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So I remember a senior Connie talking to me, um, shit. I think it was after, no, it was before I went undercover. And, you know, I was excited. I wanted to be a detective. And uh, and he said, yeah, he said, I'd wait for a while, mate. I'd wait until Tony Murphy fucking retires because if you go in there with when he's running the show, I've got no hope for you. Really? He said, oh, yeah. This is what will be expected. You'll have to take quids. You'll have to load blokes up. You'll have to get on the piss every second shift, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he didn't paint a glowing picture of what it was like to be a detective. Mm. Um, so, yeah, different um, different era. Mate, young young blokes all need a role model like that. Like testosterone is a hell of a drug, and when you got too much of it and you've got an undeveloped brain, <laughs> you, right. your testosterone will get you in a world of trouble. Yeah, I've been guilty of that, I'm sure. <laughs> as, um, as we've said something with Mex, he's um, he's dropped contact. Yeah, no, 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 Mex is just listening. I think, oh right, um, oh you disappeared there, mate. Oh, that's right, mate. If it if it drops out, just keep going, and uh, the audio will pick up again. Yeah, cool. Um, the Brereton report that's happening now with the SAS, and we talk about these moral injuries. We spoke about. We spoke about. You know, um, maybe mm. not now, but I have to live with that in ten years' time. Mm. Uh, you know, if if these things happened, I think you see these things happening when people don't have that volition. You. you this sort of stuff um, with the SAS having a bit of a piss up um, at their barrack there that have the opportunity to put their hand up and say no or just not be part mm. of it. But then 10 years later, morality caught up with them and they're like, oh, I didn't actually want to be part of that. You're like, yeah, yeah. You're talking about that. You're talking about the stuff at the Gratwick Club. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I read about that during the week because. Having been over there and trained with them, I, I went to the Gravity Club a few times. Um, yeah. And you're right, mate. It's 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 paradigm shift, isn't it? You know what was acceptable ten years ago is no longer acceptable now. Um, mm. Judged for having a nudie run ten years ago, absolutely not. Because it offends people now. You know. Yeah. Um, should you be judged for getting on the gas and telling fucking bad jokes ten years ago because it's not acceptable now? You know, no, well, and, I mean, and, and I think uh, go yeah. Oh, for, well, this was like uh, Mick Von Berg. We had him on the podcast uh, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago. He was um, they would go three squadron help them raise recon platoon in Vietnam. After every day, mm. nearly every day, they'd all get on the cans and then to be up and trained. I mean, one mm. of your operations, you did uh, Operation Boarhead. Forehead, yeah, beer, yep. Having beers afterwards, upgrade like yeah, exactly, yeah, and it, yeah, now. and a yippee shoot first, then some beers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Nowadays, you'd be fuck. You know, wow, whew, the boss would be demoted. It'd be you know, wringing of hands. But that's what the culture was then. You know, I, I remember, mate. We went out. Uh, shit, we did an operation. Um, shot a guy. Uh, at a siege at the Gold Coast, and I've written about that, you know, where the, uh, the scariest cat in the world was there, that, you know, I still chuckle about, um, which is another story that, you know, should be a hook in for people to read the book. But um, so we shot this guy and then came back to Brisbane and we're on the gas all night, you know, because shooting offended, that was, yeah, that was after uh, Operation Flashdance. So we actually were engaged in, we shot more people in two years than we ever had in the history of the team. And um, so we're back at back at my house, full of fucking tear gas, still in our blacks, 
stayed up all night, just got on the gas, the rum, and and then went to the office and drove and went to the office the next morning. The boss went, you bunch, you know, get someone to take you home, have a shower, clean yourself up, come back to work. Not a drama because um, he, he got it, I guess. But now that would be that'd be sackable offence, you know. So, um, and, and I personally, you know, because I, I think the Brereton report and that investigation, I think it's been trialled by media because I'm from a background which is natural justice, innocent till proven guilty in a court of law, not tried by the age newspaper. Yeah, mm. or, or fucking 60 Minutes or whatever. Um, or, you know, those soft cocks who sit on Twitter and uh, and make commentary that, you know, probably fat fuckers who, who exist on donuts and cans of Coke, um, which, which pisses me off. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and now the Brereton Inquirer is going into, into you know, getting on, the, getting on the gas and the boozer. Or, you know, RS being in a, in a, a bloody uh, bar in um, wherever it was, Tarrant Cowder, wherever it was, um, where, you know, guys are dressed up in fancy dress. Big deal, you know, but suddenly that's just, that's atrocious and outrageous and it's got nothing to do with the allegations that have been made against those troopers. Nothing at mm. all, you know. Um, it's it just, it's, it's certainly a combination, I think, of tall poppy syndrome and just those fuckers who like to pick and, and criticise about things they'd never understand. If they saw an angry man, they'd be whimpering in the corner, you know. So because my my uh, I have two daughters. My eldest daughter has <laughs> has told me I have this attitude because I'm biased towards Ben Robert Smith and I'm biased towards the SAS and the ADF. And she's probably right. She's probably right. But I still want fairness and natural justice, you know, to to have a fucking flag folding ceremony for two squadron on yet to be proven allegations you know it just it's just fucking appalling anyway well, it's what you, it, that was what you got on the soapbox you, well i mean you joined up to to for justice right you make sure justice mm. is served and this doesn't sound like justice yeah this is trial by no media and that, that's no. the court of australia yeah exactly right mate you know and and and, and here's here's okay 1942 you had um, you had the 39th militia and second 14th, second 16th, second 17th fighting along the track. Yeah, when in a fighting withdrawal. Then they got as far as uh, Irobira Ridge. You can never pronounce it. Then you know reinforced and fought the Japanese back. Now when they fought the Japanese back towards Kokoda, there's documented evidence that no prisoners were taken. I have no issue with that. Some of those Japs were, can, were literally cannibalising and eating flesh of Australian soldiers. At the, you know, we, we, we know the history of it. And those diggers went in there, and, uh, and, and I've been fortunate enough, they're, they're passed on now, but because I walked the track about 10 years ago, and I was fortunate enough to meet a lot of veterans when I came back. And, um, and speaking of these blokes, they went, yeah, absolutely. You know, the Japs' fate was sealed on that fight back. Um, now, that was okay. Well, I'm sorry. Because I had this discussion with uh, with some guy, and I won't name him, some fucking army reserve guy who's a, a legal eagle, you know, he's a colonel, blah blah blah. And I went to a went to a dinner, and he made the mistake of talking about this, <laughs> and I arced right up. And um, and I said, natural justice, you know, um, uh, legal legal rights, presumption of innocence, blah blah blah. And I said, so World War Two, yeah. And I gave him that example. What's your response to that? And he said, oh well, it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, an offence, it wasn't legislated 
the war crime legislation doesn't apply. So what you're telling me is the behaviour of someone in a, in a theatre of war varies because of legislation, you know? It just fucking makes me so mad. Um, and and I'm, I'm not suggesting that, you know, if something, you know, if a prisoner has been hogtied and, and has been shot through the back of the head, that's, that's acceptable. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that a lot of these are unfounded allegations and the credibility of those alleged witnesses has not yet been tested. So yet they're, they're, they're dismantling two squadron. Mm. I don't get it. It's just a, it's a neat, in my view, it's as a humble civilian, it's a knee-jerk reaction. And it's all about, we oh, look, we have to be seen to be doing the right thing rather than standing up and going, no, fuck you. There's an investigation on. We will make a decision after that investigation is finalised. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, think there's a single yeah, game. Oh, mate, I was just going to say, I think there's, I think there's two parts. But one is being, like you said, you can't punish someone for committing a, a 2020 crime in in 2000. Um, mm. it, it just doesn't make. I mean, there is there is some crimes that, that do make sense. There's some that don't. I um, mean, this this came up a lot with the. Oh, I'm having a mind blank. I shouldn't have tried to think of it. What, what's the 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 um, American comedian black dude? Where's Cosby, Cosby. Oh, Bill Cosby. Yeah, yeah. So, and people, people are talking about him getting getting prosecuted for stuff he did so long ago. I'm like, well, that's that's been a, a pretty kind of vicious crime for a couple of centuries now. So, I think it's okay yeah. to, to go after him. Yeah. Um, whereas, <laughs> waiting, waiting, and, and and trying to go 2020 woke standards of, of how society is supposed to be played out. Can we judge people for not acting like that 20 years ago? The answer is yeah. is of course not. Because, yeah. and I, th- I I'm a firm believer that. Over time, we we have to update our kind of moral left and right of arc. If I walk down the street today and, and hit someone in the head with an axe and kill him, that's a problem. If I did that a thousand years ago, eh, maybe not so much of a problem. Yeah. So so obviously, like moral right and wrong, as far as the law goes, has to be updated. But it has to be updated slowly as people evolve. And at the moment, I think the problem is societies try to evolved to this super liberal kind of place when when the humans in the society just haven't and i I think that's what's causing all the dramas but the other one the 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 media piece i think the biggest problem we've got at the moment is media picks aside they write a story and they're like that i've backed that horse and now i've got to find a gotcha moment because if i haven't got the full story i've getting and that's when they they edit it they trim the edges they they find what they think is a gotcha thing and they put it up there and they don't really care and and the problem we have is that politicians and, and high-ranking officers in the military instead of telling the media to beat it back off we're going to run our trials and then we're going to act they're so worried about what the media says about their leadership that they act and respond to media before an investigation's even taken place like as far as i mean you can probably fill me in on this like from all the law and order i've watched my understanding <laughs> of the law if a jury is definitely biased by what the media has been spinning for the last six months. Isn't that mean that the, the, the case should more likely be thrown out? Uh, what, what you'd have, that, that's American, mate, but. Um, ah, Law and Order's got me again. Yeah, yeah there you go. Um, but a good example of that is the, um, the Clarendon murder trial in Perth. Yeah. Where that guy was, was um, charged with, were there three or four young women who were kidnapped and, um, from the uh, entertainment area in Perth, raped, murdered, yeah, and the investigation went for shit over 22 years or something. DNA evidence finally was sufficient; they pinched him. There was there was a podcast on it. There was so much media attention that um, 
the prosecution actually uh, got on the front foot and applied for a judge-only trial. Mm. Now, I'd rather sit in front of a jury if I was a bad guy because a jury can be manipulated. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that you can turn up there and you can be the nicest guy in the world and they'll say you had a mis misbegotten youth and blah, 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 and a jury will you know, sometimes fall for it. A judge doesn't give a rat's about that. He just or she just looks at the evidence. And that's why this guy was convicted, bang, you know. Um, so so that could happen. You know? and, but th these investigations will take, and I think it, what you, you've got the AFP looking at it, you've got a special investigation, uh, investigations area looking at it. Um, I think the, uh, there's a courts martial or something. Yeah, so the, the ADF have got their own investigations. There's mm. three different investigations into the same stuff. This could drag on for years. I'm, I'm really concerned about, you know, and, and I'll, you know, again, I'll say I'm not defending something if someone had been slotted when, when he was tied up and, you know, that's, yeah, total wrong. But the allegations and, and having been subject of allegations as a cop, um, myself, you know, at just completely vexatious allegations that are there to to try and fuck up an investigation. Yeah, um, it really pisses you off. And they're only investigations in my case of assault. You know, like people alleged I'd belted them or whatever. Um, and sometimes I did. <laughs> and, uh, allegedly, um, allegedly. But you know, you just go, oh, God. But these poor guys are going to spend years. Um, going through this and then waiting for the opportunity to defend themselves. The mental health impacts on that are going to be huge. I don't care how much of a tough guy, how much of a warrior you are, your mental health is going to suffer for mm. sure. And that's the unfairness of it. You know, I think it should have just been, like, here's an investigation done. Sorry. This media manipulation, mate, and I know this is big for you and I don't want to give too much of way. So go, you, you fuckers, if you want to know the inside scoop, go and read the book. But, um, yeah, true. Let me turn the light on, man. Keep going. <laughs> Operation Flashdance. Yep. Go into the, the, the actual, the whole thing. But there was concerns because there was the investigation going on and the inquiry. And uh, yep. they they made you, and that was, the, the background is that they made you launch that operation on a specific day. They told you when to launch it right early. And you could yeah, use some, some yeah. certain things. Yep. Now I read that yep. and and I looked at the Brereton report and I'm like, this is manipulation. This is this is government agencies using the media again. Mm -hmm. Changing it. I guess yep. the background of that. Could you explain? It's not not so much the operation, but the, the preamble before. Yeah. And yeah, sure. Um, yeah, mate, happily because I'm I'm still. 100% convinced that was the case. And in fact, I was talking to the mother of, uh, of my mate who was killed in that operation only today. Um, you know, because I chat with her a lot and she's a lovely, lovely lady. Um, and, and we were talking about this because she actually read the book and she went, I always wondered about it. And are you, are you convinced? I'm absolutely convinced. So our corruption inquiry, the Fitzgerald inquiry had started on the Monday. We'd been, uh, we'd had a surveillance crew out looking for, uh, sorry, checking, re reconnoitering the um, stronghold where this armed robber was living. Um, we were, I started the deliberate option plan um, on the Monday, uh, worked through it on the Tuesday, um, sent, uh, sent the plan to the bosses, um, force command. It came back um, denying me the opportunity to use gas and distraction grenades, which I knew were, were required. Um, and, uh, and this guy was a stone cold. He was a violent man. Um, 
you know, he'd shot a couple of people in cold blood. He was a um, vicious armed robber, just a piece of work. And and he had um, he decided he was going to kill a witness. So that, that prompted our um, deployment. So basically, uh, the Fitzgerald inquiry started on the Monday and it hadn't gone well, uh, hadn't gone well on the Tuesday. And this is the first time I'd ever been told um, when we were to launch an assault. So we were told we were to launch the assault the next morning. And on that Wednesday morning, that's when a particular senior police officer was due to give evidence of the corruption inquiry. And never in any operation I'd been involved in before had we been told when to launch the assault. Right? That's always up to the tactical team. And they wanted, I'm sure, um, they wanted a headline which was police capture number one most wanted armed robber. Yeah, to take some attention away from the adverse reporting that was going to happen that day from the Fitzgerald inquiry into corruption. And unfortunately, one of my mates was killed in, in a gun battle that, that eventuated from that raid. So they got they got the headlines all right, but not the headlines they were expecting. You know, mm. so, and, and, uh, and you're right, mate, that's so, Jesus, what's that, 35 years ago or so? 34 years ago. Say, yeah. I'm I'm convinced, absolutely convinced that was the case. Mm. Do you find no, um, this, this media, that is so? And that is media oh, sorry, Max, you go. You're dropping out, Max. Anyway, I was going to say, I mean, there's. there's there's levels of complexity to everything, right? And and events like if if the general public new or I, mean, I, I say general public when we're talking about government and the way they spin things or the way media right. they use media and manipulate it to get a story out to cover a different thing um same with policing same in the military there we, we have to accept at the bottom of the pyramid if you're at the very bottom of the pyramid the information that trickles down to you is obviously vetted um regardless of whether it's orders or whether it's it's it's, it's secret whatever it is that somewhat to to some extent in a complex situation, we have to accept that, but don't we to, to accept if we were told everything, we'd be doing nothing but just listening to the news 24-7. And it'd blow the brains out of out of half of the, the general public if they yeah when when people get up these days and they're like, I, I don't I just want the truth. And like you it's like that old uh, um you can't handle the truth line. But but in reality, I mean Dave, from from the story you've just given, a hundred percent, everyone listening to this would would look at that and go, "Yeah, that that's a terrible way to get a headline and and divert information from from different things." But it's it's not really black and white, is it? Like you have to have levels of information kind of gates mm. in in any organization. And I guess if there's a question in this, like to to what level would you accept? senior ranking people misdirecting or, or, or deliberately um, pushing information down or, or pushing job orders down just to, to re- divert headlines. What, is there any scenarios that you would accept that as okay? Um, mate, if it was an ongoing investigation of a major nature, so, you know, if it were uh, to do with, with organised crime and, and there was a strategy behind it, yeah, I get that. I'd accept it and go, yep, no problem, order understood and received. But this wasn't. This was self-protection and this was mm. a cynical way to draw attention away from what they knew was coming. Because mm. these, these guys knew they were screwed. They, they knew that the, the inquiry 
It wasn't getting people into the witness box to try and trap them up and ask them, ask them the question, trap them up. The evidence was already there. The investigation has already been done. This was simply, okay, we're going to put this to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if you deny it, trust me, we've got the evidence. Mm. So they knew that. But if, if it was, say, um, if it was a drug importation and, uh, you know, and I was a tactical team and they said, right, yeah, we need your team to hit this address at this point in time because it's a faint, yeah, okay, no problem, we'll do. Two mm. different things, yeah? Yeah, look, I, I think knowing how to clear a room and not having the, okay, yes, no, I don't have the, the tactical expertise of TRG, SRG, SOGGIES, SX, mm. no, but, but we got, there, there, there was some uh, combat shooting and room combat was something that we did get taught by Weeksy and some of the RSMs over the regiment would come across them. Yeah, but, but with no distraction grenades, no grenades, no, no and just you're going through the funnel. And, and back then it was, yep. I'm assuming you weren't pining the door, you're, you're rushing the funnel, rushing uh, the funnel. Yeah, yeah, your first dude's getting fucking shot. Yeah, so it honestly sounds like if they're telling you don't use distraction grenades, don't use and, no, and don't use gas, yeah. Yeah, because they want a story. Because that, and I know. Okay, maybe me being a conspiracy theorist, and maybe the guy sitting in the chair uh, isn't a tactically minded dude that's given the decisions. But that is that is a. I, I think that was more it, Max. That was fucking appalling. I, I, we still did it. That's the thing. We still went. Yep, we're going to get the bad guy. We all knew the risks. We knew our vests were were uh, inferior. Those level two vests we had, no no ceramic plates. They were just designed to stop a shotty or a handgun. They were issued to every tactical team around the country. So every tactical team, we all knew they were they were useless. Um, yeah, but we still did the job anyway. Bullet resistant. Bullet resistant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there ain't nothing, no, no proof about that. Um, bulletproof about that. But um, I think it was a case of of someone in command, and I know I, I'm not going to name him, but because he's, he's dead anyway. But that someone in command who didn't have a clue what we did, and was scared by the term grenades. So distraction grenades and scared by tear gas because, you know, wow, if, if people get hurt, <laughs> um, then, you know, this could look really bad. And I think it was as simple as that. It's the Arkham's razor, you know, that the simplest explanation is generally the right one. And I reckon that's what it was. And rather than come back and ask the question to say, okay, tell me what you intend to do with these and why, no, nah, we're not going to do it. Um, so that was part of my PTSD and my survivor guilt for years. I, um, I, I carried that for 25 years, and I've written about that in the book, and, and um, to just nicely, cleverly get that back to the book. But um, but I've written very openly about that, mate, as you know. And um, and I, and I almost every day thought I should have fucking pushed more. I should have pushed back on it. I should have argued more. Blah blah blah. You know, totally. I understand now. Totally unfairly to myself. But when you're in the middle of all of that darkness and and and, and guilt and anxiety and depression, it doesn't go away, you know. And uh, and for all those years, I, I thought about it, as I said, almost every day, you know, if I'd done something differently, if I'd planned it differently. But but as I've written in the book and you've seen the photos that I've included, we, we had very little choice. You know, it was um, – we had – there was a primary entry point and we, we just had to use that and uh, and hoping <clears throat> hoping that he wasn't as, as tuned up as he was. But – as I've written, mate, uh, distraction ladder went through his bedroom window. He was up in less than less than two seconds, firing a double tap straight through the skirting board where a team would have been. So it was on. He was a smart. 
this guy was a, mm. a cunning, uh, yeah. cunning guy. Just some of the stuff he did, I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I think because uh, they teach this some old adages from the people teach. They say, "Look, you've got to, you've got to clear this room now." So, and you've got a lifetime to clear it, whether it's a short one or a long one. Um, but but <laughs> yeah. those tactics, those tactics yeah. weren't available to you guys back then. And and, and that one guy, no. Pete. That, yeah. And you guys were doing this. We do it in training, and we might have to do it, you know, a couple of times on a nine-month trip once in our lives. Mm. Talk about mm. SAS regular infantry. But uh, SRG boys and, and and the special, you know, that emergency squad that you guys were in, mm. that is daily. You're a one-man rushing yeah. a, a room. Yeah, yep. Because that, 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 you're right, mate. That, that was what, that's what the tactics were to clear strongholds in those days. It was race straight in. But roll in distractions, every room, roll in, clear, engage the bad guys, save the hostage, move to the next, move to the next, move to the next. Yep. And um, and it's even muscle memory. You know, we'd stand on a, on a three-meter range. I actually had someone ask me um, <laughs> ask me who'd, who'd read the book, and she went, oh, you know, you're standing really close to those targets. Uh, wouldn't you be further away? No, actually, no, because that's what the size of a room is. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we'd, we'd engage, and... and and it even happened to me that morning where engage, double tap, bring the weapon back. Yep, tap, tap, back, tap, tap, back. That's what fucking happened. I went tap, tap, back, and he went boom, back at me. I went, Jesus Christ. You know, so so even the way we train changed. Um, and you're right, you know, and, and I really I really like that saying. I haven't heard that before. But if I was to have my time over, it would be I'm taking my damn time to get to that room and I'm just going to slice it up as you know, as we go through and engage where necessary, rather than like Starsky, you guys do young remember that, but Starsky and Hutch would race into a room and one go high, one go low. You know, that's all very good in Hollywood. Um, well, that's, that's but even, yeah, yeah. And even the rounds, you know, even the rounds we used, mate, were FMJs. So um, three of mine went straight through him, you know, and uh, and so then we went, okay, we're, we're going to reassess everything we do now. Um, sadly, we lost one of the boys to get to that stage. But um, so we started looking at, at BAT rounds rather than full metal jackets and, and so on. And I actually went from using a HK SMG MP5 to an 870P Ringmaster Remington shotgun, a good old pump action shoddy with that massive stopping power with SG rounds because I didn't want to ever be in a situation again where my rounds went through a bad guy and he fired back, you know. Mm. Um, so, so tactics continually evolve, you know, and, and I'm, I'm very, very flattered that I'm still a welcome guest of the current CERT Special Emergency Response Team in Queensland. Whenever I go up there, they, they embrace me with open arms, which is lovely. Um, and I've gone, I've looked at the gear they've got now and the way to train and go, wow, you know, it's, it's a whole different universe. You know, well, we've got I'm pretty sure they've just, we've got mates yeah. in Queensland that did this CERT and, and we've talked ah, about there you go. And, the, and you come in on the show and they're like, He's a fucking legend. Uh, and that's <laughs> oh, that's 25 nice. years late, mate. So, yeah. Oh, it's pretty cool to hear, mate. Thank you. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, that's I mean, actually, yeah, nice. But, I mean, this took you down. I mean, and this is where this, um, this post that happening, this is where you went dark, right? And this is where you, yeah. things change for you. Was the thing... How did your looking back at it now, 70s and 80s, PTSD wasn't a thing called PTSD. Were you just 
you're just like, oh, that guy's fucking cooked. Or like, what was saying? You just and you just bottled um, it up. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, um, mate. I, I I started drinking a shitload more than I normally did, um, and I just got angry. I wanted to slot as many bad guys as I could, you know, and and that was pure revenge. I. Um, and and I, I think I probably tried to rationalise it by saying we're not going to have anybody killed again, et cetera. But I actually wanted to knock as many as I could. Um, <clears throat> pure revenge for losing Pete, for sure. Um, and my drinking was uh, every day. And on the range, I turned from, you know, I used to run a pretty effective range as an instructor because I, I was a, a counterterrorism instructor as well as being one of the assault guys. But I, I suddenly changed in, in my range drills and I'd absolutely fucking give it to people, you know, um, rather than having that firm but fair attitude before, I just, I wanted everything to be perfect. And I'm sure my peers thought, wow, Banksy's just, he's an angry guy these days, rather than seeing what my motivation was behind that, which was to save lives, their lives, didn't care about the bad guys. Um, and uh, and I and I kept it all hidden, you know. I bottled it right up. The only the only oh, a couple of my mates, you know, had asked me if I was okay, and I just I do the alpha male thing again. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. Um, the only person I think from memory I spoke to in that first sort of six months or so was my doctor, when I thought I'm in I'm in fucking I'm I'm in trouble here. <laughs> so it's just not right anymore. And I went to my doctor, and he said, "So what's going on?" On a burst of tears, and couldn't stop crying, and he gave me a couple of weeks off. Um, but we had no psychological support, <clears throat> and I think even in I those days, was, even, was there, mate? Like to be honest, how no. do you? So these days, you have verbiage, and you can say, yep. hey, you know, Adrian, hey, bro, I'm, I'm going to call him up. So, hey, man, I'm having a rough time, and he's mm. like, oh yeah, cool. The guy's running his hand. I like was mm. there, I was there speaking to a lot of people from the 70s, 80s, and that that verbiage wasn't there. That how no. do I even hey, telling somebody? I'm fucking in a pickle. Mate, um, and here's a good example. Um, so a friend of mine, Zulu, who I've written about in the first book and the second book, really tough Maori guy, um, covert guy, was in tactical with me. Great, great guy, one of my best friends. We were talking about this um, when I was in Brisbane for my book launch last month. And I did a, um, I did a, present a couple of speaking presentations. One was at the police museum, so the Sunday speakers thing they had. And I was thinking, talking about the book, but talking about this specifically. And Zulu said later, he said, mate, he said, I, I felt guilt for so long. I said, over what? And he said, um, there was a covert operative that they put into a watch house cell with this maggot that murdered a young girl. He and his, uh, his de facto wife kidnapped her and, and raped her and murdered her um, in Noosa. Lovely little girl, 12-year-old girl. And, um, and so they put this undercover guy in there with the offender to try to get some sort of confessional evidence from him, you know, sit in the cell overnight with him. And, and he said some things and so on. This undercover guy made the mistake of looking at the autopsy photos of this poor little girl and what they did to her. And it fucked him. And, and Zulu said maybe two, three months later that uh, after that, they were in the police club because we had our own licensed uh, boozer. And uh, he said he was up there and, and this guy said to Zulu, he said, mate, I've got some problems. And Zulu said, fuck, we've all got problems, mate, have another beer. And he said he, he's carried guilt now for years because this guy actually had a breakdown and left the cops. Mm. And I said, mate, we didn't know. We just didn't know how to talk to each other. 
you know, there was this whole bullshit um, alpha male facade that if you if you let that that chink in the armor show, your mates might have thought you were weak. So it was really we all internalized it because it was our fault, not because your mates had say that, but that was the that was the feeling you had. So you just went. Bang. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder if it's. I wonder if it's. So it's internalization of your mates not wanting you to feel weak. Now, if we can, if we can change the, the language and say the tribe, yeah. you didn't want to look weak in front of a tribe, <clears throat> and especially yeah. coming from a, a background where you, you know, tribe and belonging and and, and that was important, and you, we know that now that's quite the norm for most mm. service industries. Maybe that's something that that they need to sort of look at. That you didn't want to let the tribe down, and that yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Mate, it's it's you know I I still see mates who are in the job up there. Some of the cert guys as well, and um, and things have changed. And I think you know it's your generation. Your your generation are actually more open to conversation than ours was. And you know you and I see it now with uh, with friends of my daughters. You know they're. And, and I'm talking guys, you know, they're really open about feelings and emotions and attitudes and perceptions and, and, um, and life. That's the biggest part of the battle that's been won. So what we have to do then is, is have those, um, those guys and girls who work in, in uh, the sharp end actually understand that it's okay to talk to each other as well. You know, um, and, and maybe it's about verbiage. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree that the the younger generations now are definitely more emotionally intelligent. Yeah. Um, I hope this isn't true, but it's starting to look to me like there's a uh, a trade off between emotional intelligence and resilience. And yeah. I, I, this is probably just me being biased, but mine and Max's generation is almost at the intersection point where we've grown up with resilience, no emotional intelligence reach a point and now we're okay to start getting emotionally intelligent. The younger kids, and I'm talking um, 18 year olds at the moment, they, the majority of like majority of them, you have a chat to them about anything that involves uh, mental health and emotional intelligence. And they are, they're aware they're open to talk about anything, mm. but they've got absolutely no resilience. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, a, I don't know if it is a trade off or, or whether it's just coincidence, but that's something I think we've got to be careful because I, I Kieran um, Kieran too he's one of a, a mate he's a veteran he, he does a um, he's done a psych degree he's a he's an intelligent guy and he is pushing back hard against overthinking the talking space uh, and, and wrapping people in cotton wool and going oh you've got an issue okay let's sit down and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap you in cotton wool and we'll treat you all he's like the biggest the best thing that ever happened to me was I had a, I always had gone through some dramas. And my brother, who was also a veteran and, and I think psych quiled, was like, get up, mate. Get the fuck up and keep moving. That is it. Yeah. And, and, and he's yeah. like, if I was wrapped in cotton wool, I would have played that victim card. I would have eventually convinced yeah. myself that I was more broken to have that blokey mentality around me to go get back on the horse champ um, yeah. was exactly what he needed. And I know everyone's different, but... That's that, that. That is him being kind of right in the centre of finding emotional intelligence in his career path now, but also having that resilience to go. Yeah, if I get a smack around the head, or if, if the blokes around me are like, just just man up for a minute. At the moment, the, you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say, oh, if someone comes to you, I mean, and I get it. Like, you, but if you say no, you just got to man up. That's frowned upon. 
But I, I think somewhere in there, there's a need yeah. for a little bit of that too. Yeah, I, I agree, mate. I, I was just thinking, I, I heard you guys interview, and I can't remember who it was, um, but you were interviewing a veteran and uh, and and the comment was, with increased sensitivity comes reduced capability. And, and I think that's spot on. Mm. Um, you've got to have a balance, you know, so you've got to be emotionally intelligent, but, but you've still got to be able to, you're absolutely right, mate, bounce back, mm. you know, have a go, have a crack. It's okay to talk about it mate, and, and talk about it. Absolutely. Yep. You know, like I'm, I'm a, a peer support officer volunteer for police veterans, Victoria and, and cops who are struggling. Yeah. Have a chat, have a coffee. Say, look, yeah, this is what happened to me. I get it, but this is how I got through it. Mm. Right. And, and you're right, it's not playing the victim and curling up in the corner. So there's got to be a little tough love, certainly empathy, but tough love as well. And uh, and and that phrase I've been using, I heard the podcast a couple of months ago, and I, I wish I could remember who it was, and Mex might be able to tell us who, but I think you were on it, Mex, where the comment was, with increased sensitivity comes reduced capability. And and yeah, I've adopted that. Yeah, I was going to say, it was probably Kieran, the bloke oh, I'm talking about. Okay, there you go. Probably was. But, um, man, what you just said, tough love, 100%. I think just tough on its own doesn't work. Yeah, just right. love on its own. I mean, maybe in a, in a utopian world, tough love's in the middle and you need – that's the perfect balance of both. Yeah. Most positive, yeah. positive language around it and, and say, like, mate, you will be okay. I'm here to help mm. you, like, but you need to yep. take the first step. You are going to be okay. Yep. But you need to take the first step and I'm with you. Yeah. Like with you. I can't do it for you. I can't do exactly. it for you. You're right beside you. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. And and if that, you know, and I reflect on stuff as you do. Um, if that if that attitude had been around after Operation Flashdance, my recovery would have been 20 years before it was. Mm. You know, um, but it was just a different world. And and from that we learned. You know, which is why I wanted to write this, and I wanted to write it openly, and I wanted to write about the darkness, so that, so that first responders, and I'm hoping ADF people as well, when they read it, will go, "Fuck, man, this resonates with me," and I'm not the only one that it's happening to, because a lot of people still think they are, particularly in the first responder space. You know, you guys have done a great job um, bringing it out of the darkness into the open, and I, I absolutely applaud that. But there's still a stigma around mental health, and. And if, if I can, I've actually had, um, I've had shit, I don't know, maybe 20 people contact me through social media since I've been talking about this um, with the last book and, and this current one. And they've contacted me, people I don't know, just to say, man, thank you for talking about this so openly. I thought it was just me. And I hear that a lot, you mm-hmm. know, so so this is, that's why I wanted to write it, you know, suicidal ideation and um, um I was going to say we won't ruin the book, but clearly I'm alive, so I didn't do it. But, um, you know, I actually considered taking myself out one night, and I've written very openly about that as well. You know, I got to the stage of putting the weapon in my mouth. And, and, and the fact that also it's about, you know, recovery is more than possible, more than possible. Um, in my case, it was just one affirmation that really sealed the deal for me. And, real, and then I went, fuck. And then later, when I had a, a major... Um, anxiety breakdown, I suppose, without any catalyst. That's when I that that put me on the road to understanding that PTSD was not just for people who fought overseas. You know, because I mm-hmm. I actually thought, and I, and I know I've put it in the book, I actually thought, fuck, I can't have PTSD. That's for people who've been through some really bad shit. 
<laughs> and, and I look back on that now and go, well, Banksy, you did go through some bad shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's that's the message I wanted to portray. So with the first book, I wanted to, you know, have people maybe finish it and go, shit, I hadn't thought about cops in that way before. It's more than just being a traffic cop or being a pain in the ass for a noisy party. Um with this one, I would love people to be able to finish it and go, fuck, I never realised that's what first responders can go through. And I'll have a different mental attitude um, about cops next time I see them. Because no one knows, you know, like you might you might um, come across a cop who's just, you know, a bit of a prick. You don't know what he or she has just done in the last three hours, you know, that the, the infant death or the, the fatal road accident or whatever or you know, any of that stuff, you don't know what they've seen. And yet they bounce back and they come straight back on the road. So, um, and, and I think cops these days, mate, shit they do is is much harder than what we used to do. You know, well, you've got now well, the ice epidemic. Yeah. Oh man, you know, I, I look at stuff, I look at stuff on YouTube or, or Facebook or Insta where cops have been filmed and you've got the sovereign citizen saying, you know, I don't uh, contract with you and I don't have to do what you tell me. I tell you, Back in my day, <laughs> bang, um, here's your attitude adjustment. But but now these poor buggers have to just worked. bite their tongue. You know? <laughs> so, mate, I feel that I feel for cops at the moment with mm. with all this COVID stuff going on. And oh. I definitely don't want to turn this podcast into a COVID chat. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've been speaking to a, a few of the the special forces military boys in Sydney who now have been tasked to assist with really mundane COVID stuff, domestic, in Australia, when they're used to being overseas, living this high yeah. adrenaline-filled, um, purpose-driven life. And they are all showing signs of depression. Um, yeah. I mean, it's only natural. I mean, it, it'll, it, they'll bounce back as soon as they start getting some some better jobs. But there's a lot of hate in the in the in on the street yeah. at the moment for cops who, who are having giving fines to people for um, COVID breaches. And I'm like... That is not what they signed up to do. None of these people joined the cops to go and give people to give people who are out of work uh, yeah. and, and and stressing with life fines yeah. for not wearing a mask. Not a single cop that I know, and I got I got a few yeah. mates that are cops as well. None of them signed up to do that. They're, they've been put in that position. Yeah, and I mean the general public needs to to look from both sides of the coin on that one too. They've got to do what they're told to do. Absolutely. You know? And, uh, and, and back in the day, you could use discretion. You could say, okay, not going to do anything. You seem like a good bloke. You know, I, I did it when I'd, um, you know, you might find a joint in someone's pocket. And unless they were a prick, you just go, no, nah, it's okay. I'll just, you know, look, never happened. Move on. Off you go. Now, because there's so much public attention on what police do, um, they can't actually use their discretion anymore. Mm. So they have to go 100%. You know, it's like it's like traffic tickets. Shit, I'd only ever give a trip. Well, the brief time I spent in uniform, I'd only give a traffic ticket to someone if they broke the the um, <laughs> the Hoon's Act, as we called it. If they were a complete dick and went straight through a red light and it was dangerous, they get a ticket. Or they failed the attitude test. Mm-hmm. You know, you pull a car up and they go, "Oh, right, you know, you've got a quota, have you?" Actually, no. I could write as many as I want, and you'll get. <laughs> I'm just going to go my track, my track, my ticket book. Um, but you had a discretion to do it, you know. Um, if someone was actually a pretty decent person, you'd say, listen, here's your warning, don't do it again. And that did more for public relations than anything, I reckon, um, besides writing traffic tickets, shit in me. 
month. So mm. that was a win-win. But but now cops can't use that discretion. So, you know, can you imagine if they're out in a public park um, and someone's sitting without a mask and a bench and they walk past or just said, put your mask on, some dick would be filming it and then posting that to social media to go, oh, the cops aren't doing their job. Oh, 100%. You know? and, and it's the same tribalism and the tribal mentality. People have picked the team. They're, they're yeah. pro-vax or anti-vax or they're pro-mask, anti-mask. Yeah. And if, if they're pro-following the rules, I had the cops drive down our street last week because um, one of the neighbour's kids was playing with the kids next door and the bloke two doors up thought that was a breach of the rules, which by if you're going to go black and white, it probably is. Yeah. But I think that's a problem. And I think it's a problem in the cops and the military is, is over the past one or two decades, um, from the top down, I'm assuming, someone's got to the point where they're like, we don't uh, trust the 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 what's between the ears of our junior soldiers and our junior cops. Therefore, mm. don't let them use their own discretion. They must go. It's, it's black and white, and that is the law, and that's all they stick to. And then yeah. you get fined for doing four k's over the speed limit, and the yeah. cops aren't allowed to be like, "Yeah, all right, mate, I get you. I get your kind of scenario." And, well, and like you said yeah. earlier, like, yeah. ever, you never know what someone's been through in the last five minutes, five days, five years, whatever whatever it is. That's right. You know, it got so bad in Queensland after the corruption inquiry that um, the call of internal affairs, but the, um, yeah, call of internal affairs, whatever the, the term was, they'd actually send people out undercover in a car to be pulled up by a cop and see if the cop wrote them a ticket or not. They go, oh, look, you know, pull, pull, pulled over and say, oh, look, mate, I'm in the job. Show your badge. Yeah, fair enough, mate. Uh, don't do it again. Whew, bang. That was an automatic misconduct charge. Really? Oh, it was just bullshit. And and that's complete overreaction. You know, fair enough, target a cop for an integrity test who you think's been stealing money or selling drugs. Absolutely, you're stealing prop. Absolutely, go your hardest and you should. But targeting someone because you think they might let another cop off a, a speeding ticket, wow, you know, that's mm. a pretty ineffective use of resources. So that happened across the country. So you've now got also a culture where, you know, if Mex and I were working together, and uh, and and I pulled you over, Adrian, and we're all cops. And I went to Mex. Well, look, we'll just look after him and let him go. Mex would be obliged to report my conduct. Yeah, that's not I trust. Know. That is not trust. No, no. <laughs> so, so, and yet, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then and then you're then you're expecting cops to go two up to a violent situation and deal with it appropriately and covers each other's backs. You know, you're or to take immediate um, use of deadly force action. So the Burke Street thing a couple of years ago where that guy um, went off and was shot, tried to, and stabbed a few people and was shot. You know, that it just, for me, it doesn't balance properly. You know, you're expecting people, and the average cop on the street in uniform is, is probably average age, maybe 24. So you're expecting these young people to make decisions and give them the authority to do that, yet you're not going to trust them to do other things. Mm. It's a complete mixed message. So I, I really... I'll bleed blue until I die, um, but I really feel for them now. You know, with, with you've got to have accountability, but there's way over the top accountability now. Mm. Yeah, I think that and, corruption stuff really—it's—it's—it yeah. it's, it's, is exactly right. It is a complete over-adjustment, knee-jerk reaction. Mm. You have to trust they're—they're they're the police. If you can't trust the police, then we've failed mm. as a as a country. But I mean that—that's not just coming from corruption. That—that that stemmed like ties back into what we we're saying before. That the, the higher ups, the, the people at the top of the food chain, are so worried about the media 
yeah. that and this in this day and age, you you better believe it that um if a cop does one lets one person off and some idiot catches it on their phone, a current yeah. affairs running that story next Monday night yeah. and someone's getting hung out to dry for it. Yeah. But it has, it's created oh, it's, it's the culture in all cops, military, all, all kind of branches is now um, follow the rules. They're black and white. Do nothing yeah. wrong. I'm going to micromanage you to death and don't use your brain because I don't believe you have one. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And, uh, you know, I look at um, look at Special Forces soldiers where they're encouraged to think individually, yeah, and also operate in small teams. Now, where the hell is that going to be in 10 years? You know, if this whole culture is, is permeating across the army into Special Forces as well, where's going to be that individual thinking? And, you know, when the shit hits the fan, how much are you going to trust your, your mates? Yeah, it's just, it, it concerns me greatly um, because society is just, you know, we're changing the rules. From a policing perspective, the bad guys don't change their rules of engagement or their rules of activity. They have no bloody rules. And, um, and you know, from an ADF perspective, it made me laugh today. The Taliban are now calling for investigations into war crimes because Australian uh. soldiers have done the wrong thing. But they're like, and the media are entertain- they're entertaining it. Okay. Well, they're not the yeah, entertaining. I mean, who was what was that? Was that the Daily Telegraph or something today? No, it was um, one the Age or the Herald Sun or something. I'm going, fuck! But why would you why would you publish it in the first place? To stir shit and That's sell exactly ads. Right. That is it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, me, me and Max had a little because we we do these little short um, episodes a couple of times a week, just talking about the news now, and not, rather than a ninety minute podcast, we just touch on. Three three stories of the day that need you need to pay some more attention to, and one of the big ones we we kind of broke down a, a week or so back was the way the media is grabbing these stories. Monday they do, they run a story on uh, the veteran royal commission into suicide and how the whole country needs to get behind veterans and, and improve mental health. The next day they run a story like this where uh, the ta- the Taliban accuses Australians of war crimes. I'm like. What the? What is your? What is? What are you trying yeah. to achieve here? You, you're yeah. turning the public Monday, pro veteran. Tuesday, hate them all. Wednesday, they kill babies. Thursday, <laughs> let's rally behind them. I'm like, <laughs> it's right. just burning people out. It is. Yeah, it is. It is because it's that classic 24 hour news cycle. You know, once once upon a time when I was a young cop, journalists were actually journalists. They actually reported the news. And they and they were supportive generally of what we were doing. Mm. At some time in the nineties, late nineties or something, it all changed. It's all about the sensationalism. Let's attack the the fabric of what we do as a society. Let's not applaud the the majority of the population for doing the right thing. No, no, no. Let's just attack the shit out of everything else. And and you know you you see that with um, the younger generation. I knew I'd I knew I'd be an old dude someday when I'm talking about the younger generation. <laughs> Mate, I'm 35. I'm already calling the young diggers the the young generation. Um, and and the way they glean their their information is not from regular news. It's from the net, YouTube, Instagram, and and so on. And and that's just you know um, cherry picking parts of of news reports out that suit the narrative of whomever. It just it's just skewed. The whole the whole way that we that we value things in society now and the things we should value is completely skewed. 
Mm. Mate, and it's it's dangerous. They're, they're playing on like baseline human psychology that we we have inbuilt lie detectors. I mean, that's how we are realistically. Everyone on this call right now is the tip of the spear from humans that dated back a couple hundred thousand years ago. The ones yeah. that weren't as, as savvy, they've died. Their their bloodlines have died out. Humans have evolved to have inbuilt lie detectors or bullshit detectors because. We, we want to know, uh, as soon as we uh, figured out how to tell lies, humans started deceiving mm. each other. Mm. And we're like, my survivability relies on my ability to call bullshit. Mm. Um, and, and so I sit here every day, like breaking down news and going, I, I can call bullshit on that, I can call bullshit on that. At the same time, the media is playing on the fact that we want to be, our ego makes us want to be the first one to know something. Mm-hmm. So if we read a headline and it's one of those gotcha moments, you want to be the first one to share it with all your mates. And I, I mean, I've been caught out on this in the past. There was a story that I, I, I believed in so much that when it finally hit the news, I shared it with everyone and I read two paragraphs down after I'd shared it. And I'm like, oh shit, that is completely, <laughs> yeah. that is the opposite to the point I was trying to make. Yep. And the media's the media's playing on that, just going big juicy headline, doesn't matter what's there's no substance to it. Humans by nature want to rapidly share a big juicy headline. Mm. And young people are getting their, their news from Facebook, which is a big juicy headline and no substance. Yeah. yeah I mean, exactly right. blogs, blog sites. If you see a headline on Facebook now, even newspapers, you hit the headline, you click on it, you go through. If you don't hit a paywall, you'll see the headline again and then an ad. Yeah. And then and then another one that kind of leads onto what the story might be about, then another two ads, and then you've got to scroll down about 20 pages before you actually yeah. get to the guts of the article because yeah. they don't care. They know no one's going to read it. They just want the headline. Yep. Yep. They want that uh, that click through. Yeah. It's the, it's the social dilemma. You know, it's, it's, and that's, yeah. that's a whole other conversation we could have about the way in which um, as human beings we now communicate with each other. Mm. You know, it's, um, and, and the algorithms that drive you to you know, your your alt right or your far left or whatever is just fucking frightening. Mm. Um, but what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I can tie that back to what we we're just talking about. As far, it's almost like parts of our society are almost at the point where they believe robots and artificial intelligence are coming, and that's the way our leadership mm. is governing. They're governing yeah. with black and right black and white rules. Um, there is no room for reason or, or for interpretation. It's like you do this. It's, it's like they're governing or, or developing culture from a world 100 years in the future or maybe 50, who knows, mm. where we're dealing with robots and AI, whereas at the moment they don't want to inspire um, free thought at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah, exactly, mate. You know, what, what concerns me is, is, the, um, is the destruction of statues and, and the removal of books and literature because they don't fit a paradigm. And, again, I go back to, as we were saying before, you know, Put a sign in front of your face, uh, in front of your house, if you aren't vaccinated, is like wearing a yellow star in Germany in the 1930s. And removing books from libraries because they're offensive. Gee whiz, I think the Nazi Party burned books. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's not. <laughs> it it concerns me that people aren't making these um, observations. They're just going, no, 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 that's oh, they're offensive. You know, people are offended by it now. Okay, it's still part of our history. So, you know, the argument should be, be a whole lot more offended when we forget yeah. about the history that happened and we repeat it. They're going to be a whole Bingo. lot more, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Absolutely, mate. That's that's what I was striving to say. It just, it, it, it infuriates me that, that, um, that we're so woke now 
that you're right. We we are obliterating our history, and and what you know, those who don't learn from it, doomed to repeat it. Um, but you can't have that argument. You can't have that logical discussion with a woke person because they will just shoot you down with with um, um, some clever saying or, or or phrase or or whatever that that doesn't have anything to do with the discussion at hand. You know, it's just. It's and, and I and and I actually um, you know sometimes when I'm looking out the window and being all philosophical, um, I think you know what's it going to be like in fifty years for for uh, ADF and police? How the hell are they going to do what they're supposed to do um, when you've got an ADF comprised of woke people? You know, so when China decides that they're going to do some some stuff in fifty years, are we going to debate them out of it? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I don't think. I, I mean, I think white cultures are. are I, I, I think it's it's reached its kind of height. It'll slowly merge back towards the middle. Hopefully, fingers crossed. And and I mean, I, I think everyone's learned a bit from it. I've definitely the things I used to think. I mean, as well, I've, I've your brain doesn't evolve properly till you're about twenty five. So the stuff I was talking about 10, 15 years ago probably made no yeah. sense, regardless. Um, but I've definitely been a conservative, right-wing-ish kind of right-leaning thinker organically. But over the last 10 to 15 years, there's definitely things that I've had to look at and broken down and tried to see both sides of the coin. I'm like, yeah, maybe the people on the left have got a point here. Um, but no, mate, what, where are we going to be in 50 years? I We, Robocop. We have mm. to, I assume we're going to be at Robocop. World, and that is scary because <laughs> if someone's writing yeah. code for governance and policing... And it yeah. is so contrasting in that there is a there is a line in the sand that is right, that is wrong. There's no interpretation. Mm. We we're going to turn into Nazi Germany. Yeah, I, I agree, mate, and and I agree with you, Adrian. My you know my personal attitudes have probably gone a little left in the last few years as I've as I've I've researched more, and and certainly my kids have have alerted me to some um, attitudes that that weren't right. Absolutely, get all that. Um, but my concern is the woke culture is completely way over to the left. Mm. You know? So I hope you're right. I hope that it's reached its zenith and, and it'll start to calm down. Um, but I just, you know, what worries me is that is that we as a society will have no free thought. You know, that that's and whether it's right or wrong is immaterial. Free thought should be free thought. So it can be debated, you know, it can be discussed and, and potentially people's attitudes can be changed. But if you are censoring free thought and discussion, then that's that's a slippery slope to go down as well because mm. it's just not going to bode well for anybody. No, it's, it's, it's scary but exciting. I think we're going to go – I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's happened through history over and over again. We just choose to ignore the pieces of history that we don't want to pay attention to. And, I mean – this happened to Rome. Rome went super mm. left wing, and and they started experimenting with multiple gender options and and random shit when they got fat, dumb, and happy. And mm. next minute they're gone. That's um, right. The Huns were at the gate. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean it's 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 you, you, it feels like that's happening in America at the moment. Hopefully oh. not, but yeah. Well, anyway. Well. Make sure so you this one. Oh, sorry. I was going to yeah, say, make sure you back on the book, mate. Yeah, I was going to see, read in my mind. So I was going to say, when all this stuff worries you, what you really need to do is get a good book. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Turn off social media. Go and go and grab yourself gun to the head. And and in there, one particular, there's two points that I wanted, you know, we'll bring this back to to police. Sure. And, and, and this is going to be amazing. I'm really excited. 
without giving away too much. Um, so uh, and I know this was tough for you. I know the Rocky case and, and the witness protection mm. thing was tough. But, but what I want to talk about is the, the mafia and the effect mm. that the in this in that what what was that the eighties, seventies? Yeah, I met Rocky in nineteen eighty six. Yeah, yep. and talking about you were an undercover cop, so you're you know you're you saw good in some of the people that you were. Mm. Um, dealing with and Larry and, and these people who who had to get out of the job because they were sort of booking people for you know trafficking for being late to a and and they sort of got were started yeah. to become conflicted and they had to get the fuck out of it because they're like some of these people are just good people that took a different path um, yeah yeah and I know but, but for, for Rocky and I know this is is important for you but but I didn't know the, the effect that the mafia was having in Australia. Was that an offshoot of oh, yeah. the Sicilian mafia? Oh, abso- like absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you bet. Um, mate, the mafia really took foothold in, in Griffith. Um, uh, was called Griffith was, was, was the town of Grass Castles, and, and the, the crops that were grown with um, the permission of some bent New South Wales coppers were worth millions. And so the mafia had a foothold there. Um, and also in North Queensland, the, the massive Italian population, the, the mafia was known as the Black Hand. And they were absolutely involved in Australian organised crime, definitely in the 70s and 80s. Um, they're still around. You know, they're, they're not as big as they were. Um, but they were certainly, uh, you know, when I was in criminal intelligence, my, my desk was out motorcycle gangs. One of my colleagues had Italian organised crime. So we gathered intel from all over the all over the um, the country and in some cases internationally. Yeah, ab- absolutely had their own rules, murderous bastards and uh, and organised criminals for sure. It started with um, notoriety started with the murder of Donald Mackay, who was uh, killed in Griffith. He was a member of parliament who was an outspoken um, uh, outspoken against the mafia drug crops, and he was uh, shot to death uh, outside his furniture store. Body never found. Um, so a federal never member, solved. Federal member Griffith. For yeah, a state member. A state. I think he was state a state member. member. Um, yeah, got assassinated. Yep. Was that um, one of the? That was that was one of the underbelly seasons, wasn't it? Around yeah. the Italians up around Griffith. Yeah, yeah, it was. And and the only reason I go yeah is um, <laughs> underbelly is sort of like <laughs> more in order. <laughs> yeah, that's why. That's where I get my news. <laughs> I know, dude. We've got to catch up more. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the mafia were absolutely um, yeah major major threat. Um, and so when I met Rocky, we won't give too much away. Rocky was a, a witness who um, who was uh, a witness in uh, in a mafia drug crop and then ultimately in the murder of one of his mates. And Rocky came forward and went to the homicide squad in Sydney and, <clears throat> and we were tasked with protecting him for six months. And you're right, Max, because I'd been an undercover cop, I actually, I, I warmed to him pretty much straight away because he was a good little guy you know he was funny he was engaging he was a boxer he was you know we shared the same taste in music so I I basically not 24 hours a day but close to it spent six months with Rocky and and I treated him almost as a mate except it's unusual for your mate to be carrying an mp5 and and a nine mil and a shoulder holster everywhere you go (laughs) but um but yeah I really really uh really connected with him and, and I think had I not been an undercover guy for a couple of years, I probably would have kept him at arm's distance. But 
you know, once you you have a personal relationship with someone in that environment, um, he probably knew more about me than most of my mates did. That's that's how close our connection was. And I won't say anything more about that. I'll sound like no. Horace Gump. I'm not going to say anything no. more about that um, because people <laughs> do need to read that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, mate. Um, is this something that knowing back in, in, in the 70s and 80s, um, marijuana, super legal, like you're going to jail, like we did, you did sting operate, you patients to, to, to bust people mm. for mm. marijuana. Now we're using marijuana for medical purposes, DBAs mm. issuing it to veterans um, yep. in trials. Um, and trying to tie that back into the cancel culture, I'm just interested in how you feel about, so there'd be people that you've put away mm. for, for, for selling marijuana. Oh, pounds of it. Yeah. yeah. Major deals. Yeah. Yep. Um, I have that now, how do you look at it? How do you look at that? Yeah. Mate, I, um, I, I had a change in attitude about cannabis pretty quickly after, or pretty soon after I left undercover, you know, I'm, I actually wrote a paper when I was doing an undergrad degree as a detective sergeant on um, on the argument for legalizing cannabis, and um, <laughs> wasn't very well received by my bosses, I must say. <laughs> but um, but I'm a firm believer in legalization, you know, and uh, and I've had this debate with people, but probably two reasons. One is it's not a gateway drug, you know. Uh, there's a lot of mythology around that. The only reason cannabis can be um, perceived as a gateway drug is when you've got someone sitting in the same environment scoring a bag of, bag of weed from the same guy who can actually sell them coke or speed or ice or whatever. Yeah, that's You break that cycle, um, then you break that connection. And, and interestingly, South Australia, I think in 1982, decriminalised possession of weed. So it was no longer a criminal offence. If you were caught with less than an ounce, the police would write you a ticket. So you had nothing recorded against your name. Yeah. You could grow two plants in your backyard for your own use back in those days. What the stats showed was, was drug use, sorry, cannabis use actually decreased. And so we've got a real life example in Australia about that. So um, the big thing for me is it, you break the back of organised crime involvement in marijuana crops and, um, and the millions of dollars they make on the black market. You control the, uh, the quality of it. You sell it through licensed outlets. Um, and you tax the bejesus out of it. And the tax rate from that then goes into health and education or law enforcement or hospital or whatever, yeah? And, and that tax amount would be massive in this country. So, you know, I, I've had the debate with people where they've said it, it causes schizophrenia. Yeah, the reality is some, in some people it does. So is alcohol. And yet we don't have an issue with alcohol. And I've never, ever once as a cop been to a violent situation with someone stoned. Mm. You know, I've, <laughs> I've, I've been to a lot of places where people have been drunk and beaten the crap out of each other. But the biggest argument you have when you're stoned is whose turn it is to make a cup of tea, you know. Mm. Pink Floyd who's, versus... Who's, you know. who's paying for Uber Eats? <laughs> Mate, I, 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 I wish I'd come up with that concept years ago about Uber Eats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mate, I, I had the, the same type of experience. I, I did no drugs uh, when I was younger. Not no one was in the military. Uh, got very, very interested and then educated on on cannabis and psychedelics when I left the military. Yeah. Probably about five years after I left. Yeah. Uh, same as always, education's the key. Like that is yeah. if if you just want to go out and experiment with drugs. Definitely, as a child, or as a teenager, it's a terrible idea. Yeah, uh, even weed. 
Uh, Your brain's just not developed enough. But if you understand why you're doing it, I mean, I it, we were at the point now where thankfully Australia, about 10 years too late, is slowly coming around. Uh, there's a few young veterans actually. I, was, I spoke to one of them this morning. They're working uh, as with a cannabis company to help facilitate getting it through DVA trials and, mm-hmm. and, and whatever yeah. has to happen so that we can start getting it out. Because, yep. I mean, if you're using it just to get baked all day every day, that's a problem. Most, yep. more often than not, that is a symptom of an underlying problem that you're not focusing on. And that's, that's where I've seen it um, be referred to as a gateway drug. And it's like, it's got nothing to do with cannabis. It's the fact that they've got a miserably depressed person over here trying to remove themselves from reality by whatever means possible. And whatever they do, like you said, whatever they do, that's what they're taking. But yeah, Cannabis is unbelievably effective for for myself, uh, for for so many people that I've spoken to, when used with prescribed or, or the right doses to treat yeah. anxiety yeah, and to bet. overcome anxiety. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's phenomenal. And I was, I mean, I, I had to learn about this by digging through the internet and mm. absorbing what may or may not have been accurate information. Um, and, and the sooner we legalize it, the sooner we can get legitimate psychs and doctors and whatever talking about this, pushing proper information out. Absolutely, mate. It's, and, and it's also, it's interesting, the Israelis, and you're probably across this as well, the Israelis have experimented for quite some time with microdosing to treat PTSD. You know, so it's not the it's not the dreadlock brigade hanging out at a commune dropping acid every day. It's actually it's actually you know there's a lot of evidence behind um, psychedelic use to open those those neural pathways and 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 get them back to some sort of sense of normalcy. Um, and and I just think it's it's high time <laughs> high time. It's um it's absolute time that the government looked at this realistically and stopped worrying about losing the conservative vote and has mm. some courage to actually legalise it because I follow with great interest what's happening in the States. And um, the only thing that, that is of some concern is, is how do you control people driving when they're using cannabis? So there's got to be some way to do that. Although having said that, back in the old days, <clears throat> long before roadside breath tests that you have now, you'd actually stop someone and look at their mannerisms, their mode of speech, and it was called indicia. So you may mm. have to go back to doing that, you know, have random testing, et cetera, but not making a decision based on the actions of a few who would do that is, is I think, the wrong way to look at it because the, as I keep saying, break the back of organised crime, make it legal. And what you what I think would happen is that those people who genuinely want to use it for the right reasons would do it, but if it loses the outlaw image, then you're probably going to have a lot less people taking it up. Absolutely. You know, we should run some politics, boys. <laughs> well, it'd be the uh, hunting, fishing and marijuana party I think I'd be I'd be running for. <laughs> yeah, what the hell, let's start one up. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, but that is, I mean, speaking with people in parliament from, from, from uh, the liberal side of things, that is the only reason that they won't push it through is mm. because they lose the conservative vote. What they yep. don't know is that they, they gain the other side of it. Could you imagine yeah. if you were the Liberal Party legalising cannabis for yep. medical reasons? I think yep. that would be something, you know, anyway, above my pay grade. Yeah, I mean, grade. it would change the whole... Yeah, sorry, buddy, go. <laughs> you've, I mean, you've got you've got um, the CEO of a, one of Australia's um, up-and-coming mental health charities and you've got one of Australia's most decorated police officers and an undercover operative, like 
this experience and this panel, you have to mm. listen to that experience. These are not 18-year-old kids making random decisions. These are educated people with the best interests of all of us. Yeah, spot mm. on. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, any, <clears throat> any platform that I can use to, to have that message, I will. You know, so maybe when we, uh, we get to the stage, guys, where we're getting some, um, some political attention, wheel me out. More than happy to do it. Yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. Done. Well, mate, um, I think uh, without giving, because otherwise I'm going to keep going, I'm going to give away your book and then no one's going to buy the bloody <laughs> thing. Um, guys, if you are listening to this podcast, and I know a lot of you are listening in the cages or at work driving, this is a book you need to go and pick up. It is written by a guy and it is it is palatable and readable for, for everyone in our demographic. It breaks down experiences. There's excitement. There's activity. There's realness to it. Go and check it out. Um, Gun to the Head by Keith Banks. Um, mate, where can they find the book? Um, mate, Booktopia, definitely online. Booktopia or Amazon. Um, it's in Audible. Um, ebooks and uh and for those states that are lucky enough not to be living through lockdown um your normal bookstores qbd gimmicks and so on so yeah thanks mate i, I appreciate that I, and i just think that's uh of course i'm biased but i think it's got a lot uh, a lot to say and it's got a great message absolutely anything we can do to help you guys um that was the instruction soul separately podcast uh, remembering that we proudly support Swiss 8. There's a veteran-led mental health charity. Um, go and check out their free app in stores now. And while you're online, go and jump on Audible, download Gun to the Head. Um, you're going to bloody enjoy it. I guarantee it. Cheers, Keith. Thanks for coming on, mate. And uh, hope to Thanks, guys. Soon. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks, mate.